Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Happy New Year, Radicals. I'm Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical. Today's show is a little different as we recap some of the impactful moments of our 2020 guest interviews. Each of these interviews was either super meaningful to me and or to our listeners. It was a challenge to whittle down these interviews from the 20 shows we produced last year. When I began the podcast as an idea in the early part of the pandemic, I wanted to provide listeners and my friends with something very positive and constructive. These guests, I know, validated that mandate. Each guest was so remarkably generous, and the many yeses to record with me have blown my mind. I remain super grateful to all my guests. Coming up, Grammy nominee Rufus Wainwright and I look back and forward. We chat about some of the earlier career decisions and his growth as an artist and human. I am very proud of his maturity and the creative proclivity he seems to have mastered. Highlights from the year 2020. nominated for the grammy or is the record in the best traditional pop vocal it's an album it's it's the record though it's isn't an it album. it's the yeah. album because i'm pretty sure that if i if i win which would be great um knock on wood um i uh, and i make no qualms about wanting to win <laughs> why should uh, you <laughs> <laughs> but uh but if i do i know that mitchell from and uh, and David Boucher, who 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 mixed it, they'll get little Grammys too. So it's I think it's for the for the album. Oh, that's all. And this is like your second, right? Did you have something when you did the Judy Garland yeah, stuff? I, or? My, Judy, my Judy Garland uh, album was was nominated, and you know, I I remember when that happened, and you know, may she rest in peace. Uh, I was also nominated with, uh, with Natalie Cole was nominated at the same time for another album. And I remember watching like entertainment tonight or something. And there was a whole expose on her, you know, on her uh, battle with, um, I think she had like kidney disease or something for years, uh, or hepatitis or something. But, and I was like, there goes my Grammy. <laughs> well, <laughs> what do you, what illness would you like to announce today? I <laughs> you kind of get the sympathy vote. I have uh, PTSD. Uh, no, I'm doing okay. I mean, I do feel like this time around, I'm I, there's more of a of a shot. I I I I think it's a bit of a long shot because there's other people. Like, I mean, there's there's uh, you know James Taylor and there's Burt Bacharach. There's Harry Connick Jr. You know, there's the other one too. There's Renee Zellweger, who I I I know quite well, but she's and she's up for her Judy record. And oh, how weird. I know. So if she wins for her Judy record, then I'll be, I mean, I, I won't, I won't hold it personally against her, but that would be, that would be, you know, a tale. <laughs> no more Judy Garland for you, pal. That'll be the yeah, mark. <laughs> I, I, upset, I upset the forces that be. <laughs> well, the record, I mean, is fantastic. And I mean, it really is. I mean, if you're going to talk about a pop vocal album yeah yeah i mean the way you're working through that with your voice i mean it's just some really great performances and really different in a way you know when i listened to devils and angels you know i thought oh this is a little maudlin and and then you get to that chorus part you know it's almost like the bridge it's a chorus it's a bridge <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's so it's so beautiful and such a nice 
return to pop in that. So it's an unusual song. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm particularly happy with that one, especially because we, when we first started producing it, um, it was sounding a little bit too much like, you know, whatever, the Phantom of the Opera was getting very kind of like, theatrical and and uh but then we managed to kind of steer it into more of a kind of blade runner <laughs> <laughs> direction which I'm, I'm i was more happy with so 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 yeah i mean i you know i i owe a lot on this record to mitchell from i mean he really was incredibly i mean on one hand he was very very you know supportive and an obvious fan and and really has a lot of respect for me but on the other hand he he was very I don't know, uh, exacting about, you know, just getting what needed to be done and done. And then, uh, and then really getting rid of a lot of superfluous, superfluidity. Yes. (laughs) And, uh, and, and making it kind of very clear, which is, uh, which is really the job of a producer in a lot of. And early on, you know, when we started working together, you know, you started getting a, um, kind of a public persona, you know, a lot of critical acclaim, so it almost that became larger than like what we were able to do with the music itself and exposing it. Um, and now do you feel like you've kind of, I feel like you've caught up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I mean, this is what, what I, what I said at the beginning of the interview is that I wanted to say is that a lot of this, and, and you know, Kate actually told me this was due to you in the sense that when that first record came out, even though it was not necessarily, you know, a common offering, you know, uh, and wasn't what was on the charts and stuff. You really made an effort to like go to the mainstream. You know, we would get on MTV. We would get, you know, you you used a lot of your contacts, which were not like NPR. I mean, we all knew that I could get NPR and that I because of my parents and. But you really went for some some big looks, which kind of worked, you know. It, 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 and it, and it definitely, you know, injected my that record with uh, and my persona with a kind of person with a kind of following that uh, that didn't necessarily translate in terms of sales. But uh, and it was certainly and certainly being with DreamWorks and and Lenny and there was you know, but but it was a, they were incredibly supportive. Yeah, yeah. But it was just that was a good that was a really good period career-wise for me and Marsha, you know, know, incredible. (laughs) Yeah. People were really fighting tooth and nail for, for me. And, uh, and I was, I mean, I'm so fortunate to have had, had that and it really, and it lasted, you know, I was able to um, maintain it. That's what we'd hope for. It's what you always hope for when you're building that foundation, man. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I look, I had, as you know, I mean, for, and for those of you who don't know on the podcast, you know, Nick and I used to work together, but he was, you were my first manager. I was, you used to have a funny line. You used to say, I think, Uh, what did I, Oh, I I think your funny line was that I quit working for Madonna to work for you yes. back then. That was your line back <laughs> well, then. Yeah, well, that wasn't only my line. That was Madonna's line. I mean, because I, I, I met her once and, she, and the only thing she had to say to me was, you stole Nick Terzo from me. I didn't think she cared, but it, that's nice to hear. So That was her one comment. Um, so uh, yeah, so well, anyway. So, yeah. It's the cuffs. Yeah, she doesn't care, but then once you're stolen, so. she cares a lot. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we worked together. And yeah, no, I was, as you know, I was a pretty wild kid. Um, 
for a few years, really until the end of poses. And then, you know, when want one came around, I, I had to get my shit together. But but that being said, I do feel that I was always willing to still, I don't know, take advice <laughs> or, or just try and seek out the, the better path, shall we say. I, and, 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 you know, it's funny because talking, talking with you now and, and I also once again think a lot about my mother is that, you know, I, I don't feel like and you can relate to this probably is that, I mean, I feel like people were worried about me. Like they were maybe scared in a sense. Cause you know, it's, it's dangerous when you're so liberal with drugs and alcohol and being crazy. But I also feel like people didn't have the sense that I was like a nihilist. You know, they didn't think I was going, I was going to destroy myself. Like that wasn't the point of what I was doing. I was just searching, you know, very intensely. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but I wasn't searching for like my end, which arguably was the case for other people of my generation who did die, like someone like Kurt Cobain or someone like Jeff Buckley or, or Elliot Smith. I mean, these were people, these were men singers who were much more like obsessed with this kind of really dark element that I, I think if anything, I was trying to, um, I don't know, uh, look for the silver lining, you know, around that. So, so more so, experimental, let's say than yeah, destructive. Yeah. Yes. There you go. And, right. and, 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 and I, and, but it was, it could be dangerous at times. So like my mother, for instance, was like, I, she would always say, you know, Rufus, I, I never was really worried about you. I knew that in, when push came to shove, you would do the right thing. And, 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 and so she gave me that confidence. And, and part of that was just being open to, to advice from people. Right. Well, you yeah. always yeah. functioned at a high level and you were productive. Yeah. So, you know, I think that gives people hope when that's going on. It's not like you withdrew and you know, that's when it gets troubling. Yeah. I think that artistically it was, it was interesting and I, and I learned a lot. I think that, that it also, you know, there's some crappy performances out there that I did. I mean, my voice was not, there's, there are definitely like drunken moments where I thought I was being, you know, this, you know, incredible being, you know, the artistic luminary. And I just sounded like a drunk fool. So, so, I mean, it, there's things that I, I, I would have done over, but, 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 uh, but, but not needless to say, we, I made it through alive and that's, that's what matters. <laughs> so how is like, being married, yes, having yeah. a family, having this beautiful nine-year-old. Yeah. How has that changed your perspective like as an artist? Well, I mean, it's, what can I say? I mean, it's certainly, the best thing about it is that it is, is, is the simplicity now. I mean, in the sense that what matters is her and, and also our, my relationship with my husband and our kind of, uh, growth as a unit, you know, and, um, you know, so much of my career before this and life was, was just so focused around me and what, what, what my needs were and what, what made me happy, what satisfied me. And, um, and that was great for a while, but it does become exhausting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> after a while and, and to sort of suddenly be able to shift it to like, what will make this other person happy and this other person thrive? It's, it's a tremendous relief, uh, and, 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 and a great joy. And, 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 um, and I'm very lucky to be able to do that. But, uh, so I, it, it, it's a better place, but it's so different. I mean, it's, it's funny cause it, it kind of goes back a bit to my dad where, you know, my father, he has his own, um, 
path, but he's never quite been able to kind of extricate himself from the equation. You know, people have to be very mindful about what his needs are. He's like that. He's he's a Virgo, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's sort of always been like, okay, dad, you know, what, you know, just, we got to be careful what dad does thinks and does. And, um, and somehow the one little thing that I've, and I think it's actually quite big with my daughter that I've been able with Viva that I've been our daughter, I should say, been able to um, really focus on is to actually take myself out of the equation and be like, you know what? I don't matter at all. <laughs> she matters. And it took some adjusting, <laughs> but it's actually a tremendous relief in the end because it just makes you, I don't know, it, just, it gives you a lot of freedom. Rob Helford from Judas Priest. He and I discuss the impact of having been put on trial for contributing to the death of two young men. 30 years later, it still boggles my mind that a rock band could be tried for lyrical content leading to two unfortunate deaths. In this clip, Rob demonstrates his huge heart and compassion for the loss of these young men's lives. Lasted about a month. Four weeks, Monday to Friday, we had the weekends off. We were in some remote community cabin type of things away from Reno because the paparazzi were everywhere. So this to me was just this incredible um, display of, of, of love between all of us in the band. We never talked about it because that's the kind of guys we are from the generation that we're from. But that's what got us through it. That's what got us got us through it, loving each other and caring for each other and supporting each other and being extremely focused on the elements of the trial. We've said it before, and I'll never stop saying it, that as, as you did, Nick, those two beautiful heavy metal uh, guys took their lives, um, nothing to do with metal. They loved their heavy metal music. They, they were just totally locked into that experience. It gave a lot of connectivity. It was who they were as persons with the music that they loved. But the, the horrible side issues of what, were, what was going on with their family, plus the state of mind, which was, was messed up terribly that particular fateful day with um, alcohol and, 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 uh, and other chemicals. It was like a ticking time bomb. But, yeah, we were literally fighting for our lives, weren't we? We were accused, firstly, of, of killing somebody. Oh, my God, can you, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with that, you know? But we did, and um, it, was, uh, it was an incredibly uh, strong, tough part of the life of Judas Priest that I would like to say we got through unscathed, but we didn't because we all carry that with us, as do a lot of other people. Uh, and it's it, it, because of the context of the story, uh, it's very important to have it included in Confess. You did a show for the Reno community, right? The people that supported you through the trial. And that was pretty emotional. Yes. Yeah. We went back to Reno some years later um, as just a validation of us all getting through that and still being together and still not having any hate you know, because hate is a horribly destructive, corrosive, mean, nasty, terrible thing to have to go through. It doesn't it doesn't have any value whatsoever. It's just pure negativity. So for us to go back and to celebrate was uh, was important. 
Well, we all, you know, look, we all have our own contradictions in life. Yours felt like a little wider than most people's because I see in you this really grounded guy from the Midlands who still is really connected to that. And then you're this powerful, in-control person in front of 25,000 people. And then you can't find happiness for almost 25 years. It's such a swirl of things, man. It is a ride. It is. It is. And let's face it again, I'm not unique. That that whole story of of finding someone to love and um, the dysfunctional ways I went about it because I didn't know any better, a number of failed relationships that... um, that were essentially um, destined to become difficult. Yeah, and you're remarkably uh, transparent in this, uh, that's for sure. And I'm a gay man, you're a gay man. For us, it's less interesting, maybe. Um, the 80s were, were very, very difficult times. Still is now, to some extent, for those of us still trapped for, for, for whatever reason. It takes a lot of strength to, to kick that closet door down. doesn't matter how you look at it, in simple truth, that's a fact. All of us in the LGBTQ community are four times more at risk for violent crime than any other minority. And that's shocking. It doesn't surprise me. So there's your homophobia right there. Let's face it, we all have sex. And the way that I had sex, in some cases, was life-threatening when I caught hepatitis from that incident in Newcastle. Just because I was desperate for some physical human contact the same thing when I got arrested in, in Venice Beach. I was so desperate to have that physical intimate contact because I didn't know how else to do it. And then, of course, the, the sexual abuse in, in my early teen years. Man, I'm, I'm just like a ball of sexual dysfunctionality in that respect. And I think that sharing that side of my life maybe has value. Some of the readers going, that's happened to me, or I know, I know that's happened to a best friend or whatever. The humanity in the book was vital for us to put across. Lo- love will find you. Eventually, love will find you. It's, it's going to happen. Sometimes it takes forever, but it, it will happen. There is always the one, and my, my one's been Thomas for 25 years. In this segment, I speak to Jason Mraz about his creativity and practice of gratitude. I've known this guy for a long time, and his generosity and right-headedness never fails to impress me. His example is a real-life lesson on how one can attain life balance in combination with remarkable career success. So when did you, um, did you record this prior to COVID where you were able to all be in a room together? We sure were. We recorded October of 2019 um, in, in this studio. I have a larger room just next door here and then this space as well. Um, It was the first time I made an album here from top to bottom. I've workshopped songs here since 2007. I've done a few tracks that got released here, but never a full album. So, and, and we did make this album prior to having any type of deal with any, any distributor. So we didn't know what we were doing or where this was going to go. So with that came all this freedom and joy of just making music in the backyard. And Michael helped me put together a phenomenal band. Uh, there was about 13 of us in the band that included some people that I knew, some people that he knew that made this really beautiful, eclectic group of people who also knew the pocket and intricacies of reggae, um, which is a lot harder than it sounds. It's 
It's a tricky, tricky music to play. It's like slow motion funk. There's a lot of air. There's a lot of pocket in it. Yeah, You've always had a little bit of that kind of underlying your music, haven't you? In certain, I mean, from the beginning, I thought you've always seemed to have that flavor there, let's say. I, I, I guess so. I didn't really know it until I was touring and I would have, you know, a rhythm section that could help me, you know, bring the obvious of reggae forward, which would be in the rhythm but prior to that, I'm just kind of a coffee shop or campfire singer, songwriter. And with that, I'm banging on the guitar in maybe a primal or rootsy way that would allow my music to go to reggae. Should we, should we pair ourselves with some musicians that, that also speak that language? Um, but it has also worked for me to drift off in other directions, too. So I feel... I I feel like a great song could be dressed up in any genre. It really could. If if the as if the bones are good, if the if the heart of the song is pure, then it could be dressed up in any style and it would still work. Yeah, for sure. Um and you end it with gratitude, which is a very personal song. Um I think that's where it would go in a sequence on the record. <laughs> it makes sense that it's the last song and it's, it's really beautiful and it's, um, you know, very transparent on your part. Um, it's a fantastic song. Thanks. I got introduced to gratitude as a practice around 2008 and I've been trying to weave it. Anytime I learn a lesson that I think is valuable to at least how I perceive life or an experience life. I try to weave that into songs thinking this could be medicine, or at least it's going to be medicine for me every time I sing it. I'm going to get the reminder of this life lesson. And practice practicing gratitude is just that, um, you know, to wake up and, and maybe even say out loud, I am grateful for this human life, this precious life, and I'm not going to waste it today. You know, saying it out loud is different than just thinking it because we Inter internally, I have a dozen thoughts happening at the same time. Which one is going to be the loudest, right? But if I say it out loud, it almost commands it. It brings that thought forward. And so a practice of gratitude is really trying to presence what I'm grateful for. And when that happens, you get to experience abundance. You get to experience the abundance of love in your life, um, the abundance of, of support and shelter, and whatever that looks like to you, right? Um, so weaving that into a song, and I thought to really practice gratitude, I need to also forgive my enemies and I have to thank them even for the experiences that were not so great, but helped shape who I am. So that, that gratitude was in a way, it was about a 10 year work in progress, trying to figure out how am I going to address this song and, and, and mean it. Um, and when this album came up when we started workshopping these songs here in the studio, it it clicked, but I always left the ending open to improv. So the whole time we were tracking, I was doing it different every time, and I was I was just going off until ultimately I'd done enough that I kind of was able to see which ones I thought were important to me. Um, parents getting divorced, which is not an, a likely thing to be grateful for. Um, but also trying to keep it lighthearted and silly, like the cats that trip me up every day walking around here. Um, 
Yeah, so gratitude. Thanks for mentioning that. It's it's a unique song, um, but it does close Look for the Good. And I think a practice of gratitude helps us look for the good. When when someone says, what are you grateful for? Well, the first thing you look for is something that you like, right? Right. <laughs> oh, well, let's look for something good. <laughs> so I'm grateful for you, Nick Terzo. Wow. It's nice to have this conversation. My friend Randy Jackson and I go beyond American Idol and discuss the rich musical tradition of San Francisco, in which he played a big part, and the way in which creativity and A&R is greatly lacking in today's major record labels. Both of us share our love of music in its purest form. This is a great one with the big-hearted Randy Jackson. Yeah, I was trying to understand the the San Francisco, you know, how you made that leap there. I had friends up there and uh, they were working over at Fantasy Records and Fantasy had signed this guy named Sylvester. Hmm. So I didn't even know who Sylvester was, but I knew the song, The Mighty Real Song. So then I went in and recorded a bunch of stuff with them. Uh, I met all the Santana boys. I did a bunch of stuff with Carlos. Uh, I met Neil, I met Steve Smith, met all the Journey boys. So that's how the whole journey of it all started. And, you know, it was just a healthy Marin County, San Francisco time. You know, we're all close, all hanging out together, jamming, playing. It was like the original jam scene. Right. You know what I mean? No, that was an incredible time. And, you know, I think... San Francisco has been so rebranded, right, as a technology city that, you know, no one remembers. I mean, well, people do remember, but what an artist city that was during that. Well, it was cool because, Nick, it wasn't L.A. It wasn't Seattle, you know well. It wasn't, you know what I mean? It was just such a different, and it wasn't so much the city. It was always people came from Oakland or Berkeley or... You know what I'm saying? It, but it was just culturally diverse and rich and just kind of like, I used to always say it's like a European city on the West Coast. Like, I feel like New Orleans is a European city in the South. Yes. Yep. Like, you know, these two cities don't care what goes on anywhere else in the world, but in that city, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they definitely marched to their own uh, drum. (laughs) Yeah, you know, proud of, you know, like, I mean, just, you know, it was just an interesting time because, I mean, when you think about the hippie movement, hate Nashbury and the dead and all those things that came from it, it it was just a different kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so did you become a little bit of a studio rat? I mean, were you hanging out at Fantasy? I was hanging out. I was doing records at Fantasy at the record plant. I was playing with a lot of people, Frankie, Beverly, and Mays on the R&B side. Uh, you know, we're all were friends. I was hanging out with the Tubes. Uh, we became really great friends. Fee Wable. Fee Wable, man. All those boys who were like circus performers, but they were street artists, but they were musicians, but I mean, what a cool collective of, of guys. They had dancers. Uh, the great Kenny Ortega's now gone on to give you high school musical mm-hmm. and everything else that you know. He was the lead tubes dancer. Oh, wow. So, so when you look at 
how these guys are formed. It just, it was such a rich in art and diversity, just in human kindness and passion. I, dude, I just, I feel so blessed and fortunate to have been there at the time. Yeah, it was incredible. It's a definitely a moment in time. And there, I mean, you decided at some point you joined Journey and did a couple of years of duty in the 80s. Well, I was doing all these records with Narga. I mean, we worked on Clarence Clemens. We worked on Aretha. We worked on Whitney. We worked on Kenny G. I mean, we did Herbie Hancock. We did. You, we must have done 75 records. Madonna, we worked on everything, right? Mm. And I met the Journey guys, and I started a little side project with Steve Smith and Tom Costa from Santana and myself. And during that time, I'd worked with this jazz violinist, Jean-Luc Ponty, who also had played in Mahavishnu. So Billy Cobham and Jean-Luc Ponty was sort of my way into the jazz side, and they both were originally in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So from there, led me to Narda. From Narda, led me out to a lot of other things. And I just kind of found my way and became really good friends with Neil. Neil would come and jam with me and Steve and Tom. And we all became close friends. I mean, you know, I used to do these pickup shows with the dead. We had this, like, charity band we put together with Carlos Santana Garcia Weir, Tony Williams playing drums, Joe Henderson playing sax, Armando. It was the wildest band, but it was so amazingly avant-garde and artistic that, you know, it was just, it was just a bunch of artists getting together, sharing. So I do miss, I miss that actually. I miss that because I wish more people will lend themselves to that as opposed to all being so separately siloed. Right. You know what I mean? Well, that's what I've always loved about you. You know, and I think people know your persona from the TV stuff and all that. Right. But when I got to know you, what I thought was great about you, there was just no real boundary to like any of your music. Musically, you had no boundaries in you were all over. And I love that you had that curiosity and that ability to explore all these different mediums. And I think that is a lost thing where everybody's in a silo. You're right. I love music, you know, as do you. I mean, uh, I don't know if people know your history, but the great Nick Terzo, which has made a lot of dreams come through for a lot of bands. I'm thinking of a great band called Alice and Chains. Uh, <laughs> but I mean... You know, I think, you know, you love music like I love music. I think that was also the difference in the A&R guys, you and I, from back in the day. Uh, we actually really loved music. That's why you wanted to do it. Well, and, and the thing I thought, and, you know, this is like a conversation now in the modern label, right, about what do you call the urban department, right? What do you call... And it was weird, though, because my experience, and you, this is just my point of view, and you may have a different one, you know, I kind of felt like, why is everybody being put in these categories? What if I saw, what if I saw the next Prince? I couldn't sign that. I don't understand these, all these little fences that are being put up inside the label. Well, you're absolutely correct, Nick. I'm, I remember, and I know you remember at a time when we were at Columbia, we would be in England. And if we wanted to sign something, the British label would go, no, that's our territory. 
Well, I just think it's dope. I don't care whose territory it is. I want to sign it. So I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, I hope that labels are taking more opportunities like that to sign stuff that's great as opposed to just sign stuff that's researching well. And that has a lot of huge following. Because if something's already built with a huge following, what are you bringing to it? It's already started, so you didn't really build it. Right. You know, you're just chiming on as the ambulance chaser. My longtime friend Richard Fortas of Guns N' Roses and I get into the details of how GNR formulated its later musical approach with a blend of hired guns and original members. It's a fascinating look into the creative process of one of the world's biggest rock bands. And so after that, kind of, is that when the Guns N' Roses thing kind of well, popped into your world or not? Uh, I was doing, I was actually, I mean, I'd been touring with the Furs again. And then I actually went out with uh, Enrique Iglesias when he was like at his hugest, like, you know, hero and all that stuff, you know. So I was around that for that year, two years um, doing that tour. And in the middle of that tour, I'd gotten a call to come audition for GNR. Actually, it was the second time I'd gotten a call. Um, the first time I was in New York and they called me and said, we'd asked if I'd be interested in auditioning and I was going to be out there doing a record with, uh, for an artist in LA. So we were going to, I was said, sure, I'll come out and do, you know, I'm going to be out there in two weeks. I'll, you know, we could do it then. And so we were all set up and then, uh, it ended up not happening. Like a couple of days before I left, I couldn't get a hold of anybody. So I just figured, you know, in typical GNR fashion, you know, things, things changed. <laughs> so, uh, I get out to LA to do the session and Tommy Stinson and Josh freeze were on the session. And I was, which was ironic. And I'm like, Hey, I was supposed to actually come and audition for you guys this week. And they're like, Oh, you're the guy from New York. And they say, Oh yeah. Axel found this guy Buckethead and caught off all the auditions. <laughs> so cut to two years later. Well, you know, Tommy and I, went out that night and became best friends. Like we just, you know, the replacements were always one of my favorite bands. Like I saw them first time I saw them, I think I was 14 or 15 and they were opening for X. Yeah, that would make sense. It's two good Midwestern boys bonded. Yeah. So we hit it off and, uh, and you know, did a bunch of other stuff together. And then, um, next time guns needed somebody, they called me right. and I, so that's, I was on tour in Europe with Enrique Iglesias and I flew, we did two or three shows at Royal Albert hall. And then on the last show, I had a car waiting, got off stage, jumped in the car, flew to Los Angeles. Cause we had two days off, did the audition, stayed up all night, talking to Axel, got back on a plane and flew back to Europe. Oh man. Yeah. And, oh, brutal. And check this out. So I, at the airport, at LAX, I'm sitting there waiting for my flight. I'd been up for like 30-something hours straight. And I'm sitting at the airport waiting for my plane. And this guy comes up to me and goes, excuse me, sir. He goes, are you, are you who I think you are? I'm like, probably not. And he said, you're not Izzy Stradlin? <laughs> Which nobody had ever, ever said that to me in my life. And I sort of look around thinking I'm being punked. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. 
but I think I just took his job. That's hilarious. That was a really strange thing. So then you go back and finish with Enrique? Yeah. You know, Axel had said, he goes, you know, we're going to start rehearsals in two weeks. And I said, man, I can't start in two weeks. And he looked at me like, are you fucking crazy? But I was like, I'm, I'm in the middle of this tour and I can't leave the tour. And he started to get pissed off. And then he thought about it and he goes, okay, we'll wait for you because I know you won't do it to me. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that was 18 years ago. Wow. And what was your first experience with them? I mean, was it just going out on a, on a tour versus recording anything? I don't remember if I did some recording before. I don't think so. I think we went straight out on tour. Um, and this is with Buckethead. Um, so Bucket and Robin Fink, Brain was playing drums, and Tommy. And we went to, I think we started in Asia and did that, then did some dates in Europe and then came back. I mean, is he, have they always made, has GNR always maintained like a stadium level? I mean, or no, no. Was we there were, a point that they were in arenas or smaller? Yeah, venues? we were playing arenas. And then for a while we were doing, you know, like we did a residency at the Hard Rock in Vegas. But yeah, it was, it was usually arenas. And did that, did you bond with that kind of group of players? Was that good for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was great. I mean, Ro- I love Robin. Uh, I loved his playing. I love working with him. Um, and obviously Tommy's like my brother. Yeah. We were all very tight. I mean, and then there was Bucket who's just sort of out on his own, but it was very musical and, uh, it was exciting to be a part of. I think someone signed Buckethead when I was at Columbia. <laughs> yeah. I think he did get a deal at Columbia for a minute. He did. So Boy, I wonder how David Kahn signed him. You know, David was kind of like Paul McCartney's yeah. producer now. And yeah. So David signed. He's a phenomenal talent, yep. man. He's, a, he's, pretty out there yeah. would definitely definitely be difficult to work with i mean i, I enjoyed working with him because he was he's very musical and he understood you know it's a difficult dynamic to make three guitars work mm. yeah tell me about that a little bit well he did an excellent job because he would he understood the dynamics of it and where the puzzle how the puzzle pieces have to fit together and bucket really understood that where everything sort of has to have its place. And then when he left and Ron Thaw came in, it was a different dynamic because I think Ron had been used to playing, like sort of doing his own thing with his own band and sort of didn't really get how that worked, you know, or how to make it work. So it, it, it was difficult at that time. I mean, does Axel play the roles of the ultimate musical director yeah. for GNR? Or, or does one of you guys step up as a musician and say, I'm kind of the band leader? Uh, you know, a lot of it was, was Tommy. And he had sort of been somehow put in that role. And then, you know, Axel was always the final arbiter, you know. I'd imagine. That's the case. Yeah. And then was it was it uncomfortable in any way? Like when the original, some of the original guys came back, like Duff and Slash, or not? Um, I didn't. I wasn't uncomfortable in, in any way. In fact, it, it was very. You know, it it was. It was a little bit. You know, you're cautious at first. You know, you don't want to step on anybody's toes. Everyone's sort of, you know, feeling each other out, and uh, you know, Duff and I had 
worked together before and were friends. And uh, it, it fell together really quickly and very naturally. And, you know, I think we have so much musical background in common uh, as far as like where we came from and the bands that we sort of grew up listening to and the progression of our musical interests, um, you know, with the whole background in um, older music and then punk rock and, you know, our love for the stones and, you know, it, as far as like with Slash and I, it really came together very naturally. Bob Mould is one of my idols. I dared to dig a little deeper into his creative process and his strengths and his weaknesses. Hard questions to pose to someone you really respect, but Bob was beyond generous in sharing his best skills and practices. Yeah, there's definitely uh, more shining examples of democracy, um, it seems, sadly, um, than this country currently. Um, and on, you know, being so prolific, you know, we're getting into our third chapters in life. Um, is it come to you when it comes to you and I just got to deal with it? Or is it like, are you getting to the point, you know, I was talking to John Doe a little bit about this, about his being prolific. And he said, me, he goes, go talk to Willie Nelson. I got nothing going on. <laughs> so, um, is that something you look at? Like, you know what? I don't know if I can go out and tour every year anymore. I don't know what I've got in me, but you seem to be robust. And well, I mean, I, mean prolific. Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess currently with the, you know, with the pandemic and the, the sort of stay at home orders for the last six months, the good, the good news for me is that, you know, I've been able to, you know, eat at home almost every meal cooking and, you know, getting a lot of, you know, getting a lot of good exercise every day and really taking care of myself so that I am ready when it's time to go back to work. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to try to get in shape three weeks before it's time to go. <laughs> <So>. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, as I, as I get, as I get older, the, you know, the actual mechanics of touring get a little bit tougher. You know, it's, um, I always try to tell people doing those shows is not a problem. The tricky part as one gets older is the recovery time. So, you know, I have to take that into consideration when we put together tour scheduling. It's always a balance between how many shows in a row can my body handle, versus how many days off will make the tour less profitable and less likely to happen. So, I mean, you know, those are just like inside baseball logistics that, that most people, most people don't think about. Right. Um, in terms of creativity specifically, you know, my, my output is directly related to how much I take in, you know, when I, when I've got a, a quiet life of solitude, I tend to write from the inside you know, my life in Berlin was was more outgoing and more social and more on the street than it is in San Francisco. So I tended to write more vibrant characters and more, you know, just maybe more more exciting scenarios. They weren't they weren't quite as uh, interior. But but overall, my my motto always is I'm just the guy with the rain with a big rain bucket. And when it starts to rain, I go outside and I catch as, <laughs> I catch as much water as I can. I bring it home and then I figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. So who like, who like have been your bigger influences? Like, I mean, just in art in general, you don't even have to talk about musicians. Um, 
Oh my gosh! In terms, in terms of, in terms of writing, I guess with music stuff, I mean, you know, I was born in 1960. I had, you know, I had a good understanding of pop music through the through the mid 60s and late 60s as a young kid. I had a lot of jukebox singles and was able to buy a couple albums a year. So, you know, I could tell the Lennon songs from the McCartney songs. Um, you know, I I understood what the Who were saying. You know, I knew what the Hollies were about. Uh, you know, I did. I guess it took me it took me years to figure out that this guy Jimmy Webb that wrote all these amazing songs in the 1960s was the songwriter. You know, I mean, I, I you know I knew I knew that he was the songwriter, but I guess I didn't mm. I didn't realize you know how many songs of his you know were important to me. I guess being a Fifth Dimension fan first. You know, after that, I think as far as uh, contemporaries in my early days, you know, like Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks, that's where I. I, I did not know Pete anything about Pete Shelley's sexuality at the time, but I was able to recognize that he was a master of writing gender neutral love songs, mm. and, and that appealed to me. So I, I I think I was able to you know sort of sneak that into my into my methodology. You know, as a big Joy Division fan, I thought you know Ian Curtis wrote some really you know sad poetic you know emotional words and was a great performer. So I mean you know found found a fair amount of inspiration there you know i i you know along the along the way after that you know with you know visual artists you know i mean to people there's uh you know sort of an obscure artist roman opalka who spent uh, decades of his life painting numbers on large canvases you know in varying degrees of contrast and he sort of it was a sort of interesting character because he would document every number that he painted into an audio recorder and the volume of work that he created in his lifetime. It, when you look at it in large exhibits, it almost looks like a series of patches of vinyl because it's just these weird, you know, these sequential numbers in tones that create these grooves. And, you know, I think he's probably probably close to my favorite visual artist. I mean, there's, when did he paint? Like what period of time? Uh, it was a lot in the sixties, seventies was his main period. Uh, his last name is O P A L K A and good luck finding much about him. He's just one of those, one of those, you know, European artists that sort of fell through the, fell through the cracks. And, uh, I was lucky to see a, a retrospective of his work at, I think it was at Minneapolis College of Art and Design, or it might have been Minneapolis Art Institute you know, in the mid late eighties. It left a real impression. Hmm. You know, people like Anselm Kiefer, you know, uh, Mark Rothko. I mean, people, you know, sort of the darker, darker late twentieth century stuff. Oh, that's all great. I'm gonna look up. Uh, I'm gonna find Opelka. Opelka. Roman Opelka. Yeah, some crazy. Yeah, I'm gonna find his work. Crazy stuff. With the guitar and with your voice, um, I'm always interested because the guitar drives so many things for you. Um, is that always kind of intentional? I mean, do you have confidence in your singing as the guitar sometimes seems to over override it? Um, is there any, is there any, uh, I don't know what I would say. Is there a method to that in any way or not? I think in order, my strong suits are rhythm guitar, composition, uh, and then singing and lead guitar probably tied for last. Um, it's so I tend to write to my strong suit, which is, you know, rhythm guitar and sort of those large blocks of, you know, neither major nor minor chords. 
Uh, and then I tend to let the vocal melody set the emotional space, you know, whether the, whether the melody is like your favorite thing, which is a, you know, a positive major key melody, you know, or whether it's a song like Sinners and the Repentances, which is, you know, that darker minor key. So, you know, just like the simple levers that you can pull as a, as a, as a writer, you know, given the choice between if somebody put me in a band and said, do you want to play rhythm guitar or lead guitar? I would always take rhythm guitar. Good for you. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, 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 it's way, it's way more important. I think. Winner, winner. <laughs> And finally, I have known Glenn Phillips of Toad the Wet Sprocket since he was a teenager. We have shared many career highs and lows together. In this particular segment, Glenn is remarkably candid in discussing how to survive early successes and depression. I'm so very grateful for Glenn's transparency and willingness to personally share such personal challenges. I peaked commercially probably by the age of 24 and I'm going to be 50 this year. And so if I look at my life in terms of of gauging any kind of success by, uh, you know, the, the external musical, you know, the external stardom machine or whatever, uh, I don't even exist anymore in terms of the powers of 10 of audience I have lost and, you know, loss of revenue. There's so many great songs that changed my life and, and they still keep coming that I didn't think my songs could provide that from anyone else. I had enough feeling of despair and of worthlessness in myself uh, that I couldn't believe in the value of what I'd created. Wow. Well, I appreciate that honesty. Um <laughs> I, I know you're the, and I tend to have these traits, you know, the hardest person on oneself is oneself. <laughs> and I wish you weren't because I mean, what you've contributed means a lot. You know, and, and if this period in my life, it's like, I've been trying to figure out what do I do next? I'm thinking more about purpose than I am about business strategy. Yeah. And with that, I have to also go, okay, what is my offering? And I think a lot of my offering has always been about uh, how do you deal with being a sensitive soul in the modern world, right? How do you feel deeply and not get crushed by it or not just build a bunch of armor around it? Back to David White. He talks so much about vulnerability, you know, the strength in vulnerability. And so rather than shutting down, tamping it, putting it away, is can you gain the resource to feel it all and still show up and to stand in the middle of uh, you know, a world that is really hard to look at and not just be overwhelmed by grief. And how do you stand there and still move forward? I was planning on finishing the record and then going to San Francisco and being a high school teacher. I wanted to teach social sciences and arts at high school because I thought that I was too sensitive to um, successfully withstand the public scrutiny of uh, an arts career. And I I was in certain ways really right. I'm going down a couple paths with that thought, Um, you know, and more primarily around like your creativity. Like how do you uh, delineate really um, your projects, you know, because you kind of have some solo work, some collaborative work, a band that's been around for 32 years, 33 years. How do you compartmentalize that stuff? Uh, So I've had to do a reframing of why do I do music? Um, And I even did this 
to a degree, although not as much for the last Toad record, realizing I'd always had this thing like, I don't care what other people think. Uh, you know, I'm just making my music for me and it needs to, you know, work for me. And then I started thinking, well, why do I make music for me? And I, I kind of, sometimes I use it to work through my grief, to work through problems. Sometimes it's like letters from my future better self to try to give me better perspective as I'm working through things. And so if it's, you know, if it's kind of a conversation with my higher self, trying to find some truths without pamphleteering, you know, I don't like songs that sound like someone's got it all worked out and they're telling you what to think. But I started going, okay, these songs heal me. I need them. And uh, I just need to think that that's their function in the world. And it's not uh, to get me back on the radio or to get me the press that Jason Isbell gets or, you know, any of the other traps I get in. It's like, I want to be legitimized. I want NPR to want me. I want, I want to be on fucking tiny desk. They'll never fucking have me. Like, there's always been this hope that I'll somehow be legitimized by the external world. And finally, part of it was by finding community singing, but it is just people singing and sharing together. And there's no star of the scene. And when it's done, everybody goes, we did that. <laughs> I was hopeless about putting out new music. I didn't, I, I was like, listen, the career is over. I don't want to be another nostalgia band walking around like, I don't know, living off the dregs of this brief moment of commercial success from my early 20s. Like, I, 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 there was no way to take that on without either feeling deluded or like a loser, right? I, I, there was something in getting, like, instead of trying to get my career forward, I just want to do shit that matters. And, um, and, and I've also, in the course of that, understood that Toad matters and going and playing those songs from the 90s matters. And that for people, you know, those memories and uh, that community they feel and what they tap into when they hear those songs does matter to them. I've been so in that room. I, it's that's, that's a correct observation. So Yeah. And I've had to value it instead of running away from it. There, yes. there is part of that world. Uh, the thing I've related it to is, you know, the uncle in, uh, in Napoleon Dynamite who <laughs> always wants everybody to sit down and watch that pass that he did in high school. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I feel like when you've had a hit, I don't need to see that pass again, but it's kind of like everybody else wants me to, wants to show me that pass again. And I'm like, nah, yeah, it was a good pass. Yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm kind of more interested in now. Uh, you know, I'm really now is totally working for me. And there's this thing that keeps pulling you back to the past over and over and over that can get kind of exhausting. Have you figured out a way to like reinterpret it in your mind or in the way you perform it that works for you? Yeah. Gratitude. What was going to take me out of um, my despair and this despair that I'd carried with me? I've always tended towards depression. I really got depressed when the band broke. Like, that the vast majority of people I know who work in like addiction and recovery work are addicts, right? Whether they're working in a 12-step modality or whether they're working in, you know, all the many other, uh, you know, realms of recovery, addicts don't want to talk to somebody who hasn't been there. If you, you know, right. if, if you're in county medical because you're a heroin addict and you, you know, it's like you're, you Anyone who comes in and hasn't been there, you're just going to say, fuck you. It, it, you know, it, there's, there's no other response. And, and with good reason, you don't get it, right? And 
Um, and I know when I've talked about, you know, some of what I go through with depression, with people who haven't experienced depression, they often, you know, it's like, oh, I just, it's, you know, just get sunny. You can do it. It's all right. I wish you didn't have this. People who've been there, they go, oh God, you too? Yeah, that one's really hard. What do you do? You know, you can feed depression by not exercising. You can feed depression with a poor diet. You can feed depression by, you know, reading the news all the time obsessively, something I'm really trying to stop again. Um, there are all these things you can do to help depression out. You can drink regularly, even a tiny, you know, I, I if I drink, um, you know, even one day takes me down. But if I drink more than one day consecutively, I just lose hope and I start hating my life. And it's just what that does to me. And I don't have to drink much. At the end of the day, when I find peace, it doesn't mean I don't feel the grief. It just means I have a better objective experience of it. And it means I can hold on to it and contain it. And so it's like a realization of, you know, all these contributing factors and then of getting enough stillness in your life and getting enough resource, you know, with these other things that you can start getting practices that allow you some mindfulness and allow you some peace. I really want to express my extreme thank you and gratitude for all of our guests in 2020. Their caring and sharing provided a balance to such a chaotic year. Also, a huge thanks to all you radicals who have supported this podcast, sent along encouragement and kindness. Indeed, we all deserve health and abundance in the coming year. I wish you all a happy and healthy 2021.